as a, a former peace process person told me when I left, it's like the Eagles song, Hotel California. You can check out any time you like, but you can never leave. And I didn't understand it until uh, here I am now, nearly six months out or perhaps longer, and I realize exactly what he means. This is Johnny Gould's Jewish State. For those who listen. For those who are willing to listen. From the very first minute of Johnny Gould's Jewish State right to this episode, I've never strayed far from searching out those committed to peace for Israel. Sure, I've meandered down avenues of history, health tech, startup nation, stand-up comedy, Netflix dramas, even smoked salmon provenance, but peace and security is what our vibrant lives are built on. Today's podcast draws on commentary from everyone I've interviewed about Donald Trump's deal of the century. As Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said, the purpose of the Jewish state is to secure the Jewish future. And this is a reportage on the direction of travel, a Middle East 2.0, for there can be no turning back. This is Johnny Gould's Jewish State. Thank you for your touching and generous responses to my last podcast, on the Red Sea Spies, the unique partnership between Mossad and Ethiopia's Jews, which became a brotherhood in liberation. To speak to Mossad commander Danny was to speak to a genuine hero. Aral Vollenberg, Oscar Schindler and Sir Nicholas Winton all rolled into one modest man. And as you listen to today's podcast, all voices here are full feature interviews in previous episodes. So scroll down the list. Subscribe and listen, leave a rating and review, because that really helps bring audience to the show. And so it is to this prestigious episode. It's my honour to speak to Jason Greenblatt, co-architect of President Donald Trump's Peace to Prosperity Plan, billed as a vision to improve the lives of the Palestinian and Israeli people, and unveiled at the White House in January 2020. Jason's career ascended into the corridors of power with Donald Trump. He was executive vice president and chief legal officer to both Mr. Trump and the Trump Organization. And together with Jared Kushner, President Trump's son-in-law and the U.S. ambassador to Israel, David Friedman, he was charged with drafting the Trump plan for Middle East peace, a task not just daunting in scope, but also requiring extreme levels of political dexterity. I likewise have some tremendously uh, talented people, but in particular, uh, Jason, you love Israel so much that he left a very, very, very substantial job to be able to help on a uh, peace treaty. You would love to see that, wouldn't you? Huh? And David Friedman, likewise, one of the most successful lawyers in the United States, and he said, I want to I want to do something. He's your ambassador, as you know, David Friedman. So we're very honored to have the two of you working so hard to try and bring about peace. And I think you'll be very successful. And if you're not, you'll get blamed because I just put it on record that you're going to do And as you'll hear, it's a plan that shies away from decades of U.S. Middle East policy. Previous administrations preferred a two-state solution as the most practical settlement to the conflict. It used to envision an Israeli state alongside a Palestinian one, based on the 1967 borders, with East Jerusalem as the Palestinian capital. 
Yet, Messrs Greenblatt, Kushner and Friedman have chosen a fresh and different approach. I do want to also push back on a question that I often get, which is, how is it that a religious man, or in the case of Jared and David as well, three Orthodox Jews were the right choice for this? And I would argue it's quite the opposite. Religion is so important in this region um, that my being a religious person has only enhanced the conversations and the respect that we showed one another. In September 2019, Jason left the White House and his peace-seeking colleague David Friedman had swift opportunity to pay tribute to him. This is the first chance I have to speak in public since the uh, announcement about about uh, 45 minutes ago that my, my dear friend Jason Greenblatt is leaving the White House. So let me just start with just a couple of words on that. Um, if, you, um, if you knew Jason's family, his beautiful uh, six children, all, uh, all still single. Uh, they're young. The oldest is uh, first or second year in college. Uh, you'd understand what kind of a sacrifice he's made over the last two and a half years. Um, sometimes uh, that gets lost on people. They, uh, you know, people in the media feel free to criticize what we do, and it's it's their right and privilege, and we accept all criticism. Uh, every now and then, it would be nice for someone to say. Thank you for your service. And so let me say to Jason, thank you for your service. You've done an incredible service. So I asked him what his involvement in the process is now. In February 2020, he joined our crowd, the venture investment platform, as a partner with responsibilities of building economic ties to the Middle East. The Trump plan is another once-in-a-generation opportunity. Heard it before? Well, maybe it is, given the completely new approach to solving this seemingly imponderable, unending conflict. Here now is Jason Greenblatt. From Great Britain, via Israel to the world, this is Johnny Gould's Jewish State. Tell your friends, spread the word, and subscribe now. Thank you. It's a real pleasure to be here. Yes, I I would answer in two ways. First of all, I was one of the chief architects. I worked very closely with two good friends of mine, Jared Kushner, President Trump's son-in-law and a senior advisor to President Trump, as well as our friend, Ambassador David Friedman, the U.S. ambassador to Israel. And I would agree with you that it's an opportunity to the next generation, but I would say it's an opportunity for the next generation of everybody in the region. Israelis, Palestinians, and all of the Arab countries that surround them. I think that people have come to the realization that the past peace efforts have failed. They are unlikely to succeed. And what we have presented is a very detailed, very lengthy plan that could show everybody what the compromises are that are necessary in order to achieve peace. And I think that the younger generation in the region is ready for this. I think that they believe that the Palestinian people deserve something so much better than they have. I think that if we succeed, if peace is achieved, everybody in the region can benefit from it tremendously. Now, it's as if in anticipation of the Palestinian Authority's rejection of the plan, you'd also consulted with Palestinian people on the ground. I guess a groundswell is also the key to making peace. It's in the hearts of the people as well as the leadership. Absolutely. First of all, it was no secret to us that the Palestinian Authority would likely reject the plan, any plan, frankly, that we put out. When President Trump 
made his bold and courageous and historic decision to recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel and several months later move the embassy, both in accordance with U.S. law, something that U.S. law required since 1995, the Palestinian Authority cut ties to the administration. But they also began to trash talk the plan that they had not yet seen, and in the months preceding the launch of the plan, they rejected the plan, including using statements by their prime minister such as, the plan should be born dead, it should be a stillborn, something to that effect. That's not quite an exact quote, but that was the tone of the conversation about the plan. But what everybody should realize is it isn't just the leadership that is necessary to get on board. It is essential for the people to get on board, and if the people are not with this plan, whether Israeli or Palestinian, the plan has little chance to succeed. I also want to add, we have to remember that there really are two leaderships for the Palestinians, or at least one leadership in Ramallah and one so-called leadership in Gaza. Hamas, which is a terrorist organization funded by Iran, and that subjugates the nearly 2 million Palestinians that live in Gaza and causes tremendous suffering to those Palestinians, is, whether we like it or not, uh, some form of Palestinian leadership. So even if their leadership in Ramallah, even if President Abbas were to engage on the plan, one has to wonder and really talk about what happens to the Palestinians in Gaza. Our plan, of course, provides for that. But if we can't get the people in Gaza and their, leader, their so-called leadership on board, then there is no effective way to implement the peace plan. Very few people talk about that. They make it seem as though it's simple. If President Abbas either condemns the plan or engages on the plan, then we know our next steps. Well, that's a bit too simplistic. We must all figure out a way to handle and deal with the two million Palestinians who are suffering in Gaza. Sergeant Benjamin Anthony, CEO of the Miriam Institute, my first ever interviewee in the series, and whose new state solution, an alternative Middle East plan, is examined in episode one in detail, says the days of mass protests in Gaza are over, hinting at change. Hamas said at the time that in response to the opening of the embassy, they would have quarter of a million Gazans storming the fence with a view to moving into the state of Israel. Now, the end result of that was that they had approximately 20,000 at the peak of these demonstrations at the fence. Now, 20,000 is not an insignificant number, but if you look at the demographic, that's the 18 to 35-year-old demographic, in other words, a younger generation of the Gazan people. That's with all of the financial inducement, all of the duress, all of the forcing of people to the border fence, and the number was not a staggering number. Now, what we take from that is that the next generation of Palestinian Arabs, including those in the Gaza Strip, have given up the ghost of listening to Hamas rhetoric about the destruction of the state of Israel, about coming back to Jerusalem, and in actual fact are looking to put food on their table, raise their families, have sovereignty, have independence, and build a country in the image that they wish to see it take form. It's 70 to 80 pages, carefully drafted, but requires both sides to come together and also, very, very importantly, make sacrifices. Yes, there is no peace plan that anybody could put forth that doesn't require sacrifices. We studied the conflict at length. We spoke to virtually all of the experts who had been involved in prior efforts. We spoke to the leadership not only in Ramallah and in Jerusalem, but throughout the Arab capitals in the region and elsewhere around the world. But everybody has to remember that the only way peace can be brought forth 
is with difficult compromises and from the two sides themselves. There is no country in the world, not the United States, there is no international organization, not the United Nations, not the European Union or others, who could force a peace deal. It is simply not possible. Even if it were possible, it would likely be a peace deal that wouldn't last very long. The two sides have to get together, agree on the compromises, and eventually, hopefully, sign such a peace agreement. We believe we put forth the proposal, a very, a very, very lengthy proposal, that should allow everybody, not just the leadership, but every individual living in that area to understand the compromises that are necessary. If in the end, the Palestinian leadership chooses to continue to simply say, we want what we want, we want what we've demanded over the decades, and that's all we'll accept, then I think they'll find that they are unlikely to get that deal now or ever. Anthony Scaramucci, Donald Trump's short-lived former communications director, told me that peace lies in symmetry. Israel is an economic engine. The Palestinian territories aren't. If you don't create balance or some level of symmetry, uh, remember what von Metternich said about peace. In peace, you need balance. In peace, you need a structured forces where allies are committed to suppressing the internecine conflict. And if you're that unbalanced, you're going to create a period of hopelessness that will lead to war. They have hopelessness already. We're past that. that. No, but I understand that. But you started annexing their territories. Okay, listen. But we gave Gaza back. I'm from a camp. I'm from a camp. I don't call it the West Bank. I call it Judea and Samaria. I'm from that camp. Do you understand that? But I am telling you, you want to figure out a way to cohabitate with them. You want to. Okay, and Jared's plan is close, actually. I applaud Jared's plan, but it needs to be slightly better for them. And then you can have the peace with the security. You know, right now, Israel is a very strong, stable nation, very secure. But why jeopardize its security by that, that, that sort of stuff? And I, believe me, I've been to Starot. I've seen the menorah that's made out of the case of rockets. Okay, I'm a, I'm a Zionist. Okay, but I'm telling you, you've got to come up with something there to equalize, slightly equalize that, which will help Israel. I read in an article this morning, I don't know the accuracy of the article, but I read that the Palestinian leadership has presented their response to our plan to the quartet. The quartet is comprised of Russia, the United States, the European Union, and the United Nations. From what the article says, the presentation of their response is nothing more than a regurgitation of the demands that they have been making over the decades. Demands that, by the way, should never have been made, promises that should never have been made. It's one thing to aspire to something, but if you're not willing to compromise, and if you're only going to stick to your demand, then what happens? Israel has continued to thrive and prosper and will likely continue to thrive and prosper. And the Palestinians will uh, unfortunately be left further and further behind. And that's a real tragedy. Now, there's two absolutes at the top of this plan, aren't there? No one should be uprooted from where they live. And Israel's security must be paramount. Gaza, as you've mentioned, a massive threat to Israel and a massive part of this future with split leadership and a lesson from history of how land is ceded to try to sue for peace and it's not worked. That's exactly right. For us to have put forth a plan that simply demanded that Israel vacate land and hope that peace would break out and uh, stay, it would have been foolish, I think. I think the lessons from Gaza 
were very, very clear. So what we did was build in ironclad security protocols for Israel. If we didn't do an adequate job, the Israelis will, of course, let us know. And I think the fact that both Prime Minister Netanyahu and alternate Prime Minister Benny Gantz have endorsed the plan suggests that we did a pretty decent job. But I'm sure that if we move forward on the plan, their security experts will have plenty to say. But our goal was to be sure that we try to give the Palestinians as much of a hand in the security of the Palestinians and their um, arrangements with the Israelis and the region as they could possibly handle. We have to recognize that they have some experience, but very limited experience compared to what Israel has. And therefore, it would take them time to come up to speed to create those security protocols. However, we didn't want to see Israel in a position where even after a peace agreement was signed, if there were, say, a change in leadership in the Palestinian uh, leadership or for whatever reason, the Palestinian leadership decided to abrogate some or all of their responsibilities under a signed peace treaty, we didn't want Israel to be in the situation where in order to defend itself, it would end up getting condemned around the world as it has been all the time. It would uh, find itself with resolutions in the United Nations condemning itself. So we basically in, um, kept a snapback provision where if, to the extent the Palestinians were not doing a good enough job to ensure Israeli security, the Israelis could do what they had to do to protect their citizens. That is, after all, one of the most important jobs of any government. Colonel Richard Kemp, former commander of British forces in Afghanistan and member of the Joint Intelligence Committee and National Crisis Management Group COBRA, believes this is the most realistic deal. It's the one thing that will potentially, potentially uh, improve the standard of living for Palestinian people. They're the, su- they're the people above all who suffer from Palestinian leadership's intransigence, which has gone on since 1937, the first proposal for a two-state solution in effect was made by the Peel Commission in Britain in 1937, rejected by the Arab leadership, and they've consistently rejected these moves ever since. President Trump's latest Middle East peace plan is not a peace plan. It will annex Palestinian territory, lock in illegal Israeli colonization, transfer Palestinian citizens of Israel, and deny Palestinian people their fundamental rights. When the government meets with the US Secretary of State later today, will he make it clear that the British government will stand for a genuine, internationally-backed peace plan rather than this stuff proposed by Trump yesterday? Uh, well, Mr. Speaker, let's be clear. This is a problem that has bedeviled the world for, for decades and the Middle East, of course, in particular. No peace plan is perfect, but this has the merit of a two-state solution. It is a two-state solution. It would ensure that Jerusalem is both the capital of Israel and of the Palestinian people. And I urge him rather than being so characteristically negative, to reach out to his friends, my friends, our friends in in the Palestinian Authority, to Mahmoud Abbas, for whom I have the highest respect, and urge him for once to engage uh, with this initiative, to get talking rather than to leave a political vacuum. Jeremy Corbyn has the greatest respect for President Abbas and those in the Palestinian... We try to be as fair as possible to both sides, giving the Palestinians the right and the power to handle as much security as they were capable of, but at the same time, giving the Israelis the right and the power to step in as and when necessary to protect themselves. I'll just add one more point. In the last few weeks, we've seen, not the first time, but we've seen again 
President Abbas abrogating his responsibilities under different agreements that he has signed or that the Palestinian Authority had signed with Israel. That is exactly the point of why we made sure not to put Israel in that position, so that if a peace agreement was signed and later weakened or abrogated by Palestinian leadership, Israel would still have the power and authority to defend itself, irrespective of what the Palestinian leadership might do to a peace agreement. And I think that's one of the key aspects of our peace agreement or our peace proposal. Indeed, it has been rejected by Mahmoud Abbas a thousand times no in the traditions of PLO leadership. In a similar vein to Yasser Arafat, who rejected what looked like a marvellous opportunity when Bill Clinton was president. The current Palestinian leadership has four years to miss this opportunity too. So on top of Israel being able to defend itself irrespective of the Palestinian leadership's decision, there's also a time limit with which Israel can then put a flag in the sand and cede the sovereignty it needs for its security. Yes, well, you raise an important point that people also often fail to talk about. You know, they speak about President Abbas rejecting our peace proposal. But what they forget to say is we are not the first to go down this road. President Abbas, the Palestinian Authority, the PLO, have rejected peace proposals time and time again. In fact, our predecessor, President Obama, and his team put forth a proposal, exacted a settlement freeze out of Israel for approximately nine months, and the Palestinian leadership never got back to President Obama. So we, are in, we were in no different position with the Palestinian leadership rejecting the proposal than others had been, including what some perhaps many would argue, was a much more friendly administration to the Palestinians. And where did that leave everybody? That left the Palestinians, again, in a very, very unfortunate situation. Those in what I call Judea and Samaria, and others call the West Bank, some call, wrongfully so, and absolutely factually incorrectly, the occupied Palestinian territories. They fared better than those in Gaza, but they're held back tremendously. And those who are in the so-called refugee camps, they are not Palestinian refugees. Maybe there are still a small group of the original refugees. But those who have been kept in those camps and used as political pawns have suffered more than anybody. And it is time for them to have better lives. So our proposal was intended to make the lives better for everybody. Is it perfect? By no means. Nothing can be perfect in this situation. But we think it is as good a plan as any and a realistic plan, and one that could actually be implemented. And uh, I think that the Palestinian leadership is missing a tremendous opportunity here by not engaging on this plan. Israel's outgoing ambassador to the UK, Mark Regev, told me at the embassy in London that his country can't be responsible for the shortcomings in Palestinian leadership. There's no doubt that the Palestinians have, have raised themselves questions about their own leadership because... Palestinian leadership has not been able to deliver for the Palestinians, and, and, and that's, that's a tragedy. Ultimately, there were numerous points in, in the history of the conflict where we could have moved forward in peace. And at every occasion, Palestinian leadership closed the door. I can only hope that the Palestinians will see what's going on in the rest of the Arab world. They see more and more Arab states talking to Israel, recognizing Israel, understanding that Israel is a part of the region. 
and that the Palestinians will see that like many of their Arab brothers and sisters, Israel does not have to be an enemy. Jason, was the thinking behind four years in this plan a termination date to fall within the notional second Trump term so that this could be implemented before he perhaps became a lame duck and then the next round of Republican-Democrat presidential national election was fought? Well, I certainly hope it'll be a second Trump term. I think it's no secret that I support President Trump very, very strongly. I think he's been a strong president for the U.S., for the U.S.-Israel relationship, and so many other critical um, issues that we face in today's world. Uh, the U.S.-Arab country relationships, Israel and its relationship with its Arab neighbors. But really, the politics of it was not the driving force. The reason for giving them what is four years is that we understood that the Palestinian leadership would reject it out of hand, or we we thought that that was the likely scenario. And we wanted to give them time to digest it, to recognize that they were fighting a battle that wasn't worth fighting, to give them time to do that, to come back to the table. And we wanted to protect their interests, that is the Palestinian people's interests, so that their leadership wouldn't put them in a position where they weren't left with something that they can then negotiate with and for and around. So that is the real reason for the multiple year um, give, if you will, to the Palestinian people. Can we talk about the word annexation, Jason? Because it's a word which follows the deal of the century around. It's a word which opponents use as a starting point to intellectually oppose it as indefensible. But it's a highly contested word, a word my good friend Colonel Richard Kemp schooled me on (laughs) in episode 29. I'll pick you up on one point there. You use the word annexation and it's commonly used, people talk about annexation, but it's actually, you're only annexing territory if you're annexing someone else's territory. But I go back to what I said before, that that I, I consider this to be Israel's territory. And I know that's disputed, but, but I think that's one for There I am being uh, bashed over the head by the media that I have read and not realising the potency of the words, yeah. despite my position. That happens a, a bit happens a lot to all of us yeah but it's it's um i think you know the fact is that that israel can now if you want to use the word annex can now annex not all, anymore exercise exercise sovereignty in uh in the areas that the, that the peace proposal allocated as being permanent israel areas of israeli sovereignty and that stephen daisley the well-known british journalist extremely helpfully explained in the spectator this week what netanyahu has pledged to do is change the legal status of Israeli settlements as well as the Jordan Valley, a buffer zone between Israel and Jordan. So all in all, 30% of Judea and Samaria would be governed in the same manner as the rest of Israel, leaving the remainder under a mix of Israeli military admin and Palestinian civilian control. Ergo, this is not annexation. Yeah, well, I prefer to use the word application of Israeli law. Uh, of course, everybody else who fights the very issue that we're speaking about and is dismissive of the plan uses the word annexation. You know, this situation has left so many Israeli citizens in a state of limbo. Why? Because the Palestinian leadership has refused to negotiate, as we discussed earlier on in our conversation. There is no reason why these Israelis who live in these areas in Judea and Samaria, the biblical heartland of the Jewish people, 
need to remain in a state of limbo. There is no reason we should allow President Abbas and the Palestinian leadership to have a veto card in any way, shape, or form over Israelis who live in what I don't use as the term settlements. I use the term cities and towns, perhaps neighborhoods, because that's what they really are. The word settlements, historically, I understand why people started to use it. But over the years, it has been used as a pejorative term, as a political term, and that's not what it is. For those who don't go to the so-called settlements, they should understand that these are neighborhoods no different than the neighborhood that I live in, Teaneck, New Jersey, with homes, with school children singing and playing soccer, and everything else that goes along with it. And what our plan does is not only give the Palestinians four years, as you said, to hopefully begin to understand the very many benefits that could come to them from negotiating on this plan and eventually hopefully signing a peace treaty. But it also gives the Israelis finality, finally, to allow these Israeli citizens to live like their brothers and sisters throughout the rest of Israel. Is the kicker, in fact, in all of this as follows. The Oslo Accord and the so-called two-state solution were in fact a structure to force Israel to make peace, whereas this is actually putting the boot on the other foot after decades of Palestinian intransigence and failed leadership, failed opportunities, missed opportunities. It actually forces the Palestinians to make peace with Israel instead. Well, I'm not a believer in um, the force concept. Again, I, I don't think forcing one side or the other would work. But what we think we did was simply tell the Palestinians, it's your choice. You have your elected leadership, not really, right? Certainly not in Gaza and uh, President Abbas is in um, many, many years of what was supposed to be a four-year term. But you have your leadership and your leadership is there, some would say guiding them, some would say leading them, others would argue vehemently against the use of those two words. But that is the leadership that you have. If your leadership chooses to bring you to a better future, then we have outlined a path for a tremendous opportunity for you. You can build something for your society as good, if not better, than Israel if you take it seriously. But at the same time, we're saying, but you can no longer drag Israel backward in any way, shape, or form. Israel will move forward as it has, but it will move forward in an unfettered direction while you either ignore this proposal or while you hopefully strategize on how to get your own house in order. But you cannot uh, think for a moment that Israel should um, not move forward in areas where Israeli civilians live and certainly not move forward in the Jordan Valley, which is of paramount importance to Israel's security. So I would argue that that wasn't intended to force the Palestinians uh, but rather to say, you can't control Israel, you can control yourselves. Yakov Lapin, military affairs correspondent and in-house analyst with Miriam Institute, explains why Mahmoud Abbas will become the latest Palestinian leader not to revoke the right of return. Uh, first of all, I think that the chances of uh, Abu Mazen, of Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas, of accepting any deal, let's put aside the details right now, accepting any deal that would mean that he gives up the right of return is, is, is practically zero. I don't think he's strong enough to leave behind a legacy um, in which he is seen as the Palestinian leader who gives up the right of return. Um, whether he wants to or not, I'm not 
delving into his mind, but in terms of power politics, he's under constant threat from Hamas. He's being tarred as a traitor, even right now, just for having security coordination uh, with Israel on a daily basis. And I think he's reached the limit of what he can do in terms of um, uh, coming towards Israel diplomatically. So that's that's one thing. So the other thing is, if, if he's unable to, if we accept that assumption, he's unable to accept any deal right now, um, what's the significance of this deal? Well, this deal actually um, sets out Israel's core security interests, which is Jordan Valley, presence on the Jordan Valley, um, uh, permanent presence in the settlement blocks, um, and these are things that have been recognized by uh, the Trump deal. Uh, there are other aspects that appear to be problematic or which can't be uh, implemented in the near-term future. So I think what this deal really shows is that A, the region has changed, B, the United States recognizes Israel's core security interests, and C, it could be a starting point in the future if conditions allow uh, for negotiations to continue. Jason, I want to ask you, what kind of peace partner is the Palestinian Authority while they continue to pay salaries to the families of those who've killed Israelis in suicide missions? Another critical question that sadly is hardly ever discussed. What our plan also provides is that the Palestinian leadership must take steps to end that heinous practice of rewarding Palestinians who try to murder and harm Israelis. It was amazing to me that until the Taylor Force Act was passed, very, very few people paid attention to that. Through the hard work and efforts of uh, the U.S. government, including our Congress, uh, our Senate, and President Trump, the Taylor Force Act was passed. Um, and one has to wonder how anybody could think in their right mind that you can build a peace deal without stopping that type of incitement, without stopping that type of glorification of terrorism. Professor Gerald Steinberg, chief executive of NGO Monitor, which he started to end promotion of politically and ideologically motivated anti-Israel agendas by NGOs, told me that peace will be brought forward when Europe stops funding terrorism via grants to the Palestinian Authority. I often ask European officials, your term in office, you have distributed 500 million euros to uh, NGOs, of which maybe a quarter has gone to Israeli-Palestinian groups. What have you achieved? I have never had any European official be able to answer that question. But there's never any. What have they achieved? There's no peace. Certainly the Palestinians are no closer to human rights than they were 20 years ago. They're killing and oppressing their own people. There is no progress towards a viable Palestinian economy despite all the aid. So what have they achieved? So I think what differentiated our plan from others in the past is we put in parameters on what really constitutes peace. It's not just about negotiating land. It is not just about negotiating about Jerusalem. It is not just about negotiating what happens to these poor Palestinians who are used as political pawns, as I mentioned earlier. But if you cannot rip out of the law books this law that terrorizes Israelis, if you can't stop glorifying the murder and harming of Israelis, that's not a peace worth having. There were three Arab ambassadors present at the White House for the unveiling of the plan. Is that perhaps the most potent symbol of all in the region, that the temperature is changing, particularly from the Sunni world? 
There's no question that the temperature has changed dramatically in the three years that I was at the White House. Uh, in, in my first few meetings with the Arab countries, it was clear to me how much the temperature had changed, but most of it was overt, uh, so-called under the table. However, during the three years, largely through the efforts of President Trump, Prime Minister Netanyahu, and each of the Arab neighbors, every one of them deserves credit for this. You saw things such as Prime Minister Netanyahu visiting the late Sultan of Oman. You saw the Israeli national anthem, the Hatikva, being sung in Abu Dhabi. Various sports tournaments took place in the United Arab Emirates, including uh, one after I left that was a cycling tournament with the Israeli national cycling team participating. So much has changed. And the fact that those three countries, each of which deserves tremendous credit for being at the unveiling of the peace launch, United Arab Emirates, Oman, and Bahrain. My hat is off to each of those countries, each of those leaders. But at the same time, we have to recognize that there is a limit. They have their own national interests to protect, which they will. But they also, and they want to see a better future for the Palestinian people. They work hard to negotiate for the Palestinian people, even though they're not their leadership, and they revert and uh, respect the Palestinian leadership, at least in Ramallah. And I think we should encourage more and more of that. I'm very involved uh, on a day-to-day -day basis, both in the political side, but more importantly on the business side, trying to continue to build those ties. Uh, I'm a partner at, an, at a venture capital firm known as Our Crowd, where I continue to try to build business ties between Israel and its Arab neighbors. But there will be a limit to how far these countries will go until this issue is resolved. As Ed Hussein told me in episode 33 of Johnny Gould's Jewish State, a synagogue was being built alongside a church and a mosque in the United Arab Emirates. Reality on the ground, Johnny, is changing. You know, Mahmoud Abbas can scream till the camels come home. But ultimately, the reality on the ground is that young people that I meet in the West Bank, in East Jerusalem, and indeed those coming out of Gaza have been to the crossing go and speak to everyone that you meet them and people just want to move on a young generation is sick and tired of this you know this is the internet generation this is the twitter generation this is the facebook instagram and the unknown app generation and polling done by the saudis and others tells us that those young people want to be part of the global economy do well contribute and have their dignity back many of them in in, in eastern jerusalem are, are more content living under israeli rule than under un, yeah. under you know mahmoud abbas's west bank um dictatorship. Sudan, the most hostile of all Arab nations to Israel, is defrosting. How much of a window of opportunity is this change in temperature? How much of it is down to business that you're leading with our crowd in trying to create a new consensus, the sort of which was created perhaps after the end of the Second World War to create an enlarged Western? Well, I think that it is essential for peace and stability in the region. You know, people used to say that this conflict, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, is the core conflict of the region, and there will be no peace and stability in the region without that conflict being resolved. I can't say whether or not that was true decades ago, but I will say that that is utter nonsense today. If we were to solve this conflict, we will not solve the many other ills and conflicts that are facing the region. But what I will say is that if we can develop these business ties, if we can develop these relationships, the areas will become more prosperous, more secure, happier, the younger generation of which most of these countries 
this is the key to giving them better lives. Again, I want to stress, this isn't intended to leave the Palestinians behind. I would be um, the most happy if the young Palestinians could be part and parcel of that rebirth of the economic things that we are trying to work on. Uh, to give you a little bit of background on that, in 2017, when I met Prime Minister Netanyahu on one of my first visits to Israel, one of my first official visits to Israel, he was telling me all about how when Mobileye was sold for billions and billions of dollars, and he was justifiably proud of that Israeli company being sold in that manner. About two hours later, I was driven to Ramallah, where I met some young Palestinian tech entrepreneurs who pulled me aside and said, Jason, please help us develop our own Mobileye so we could be as successful as the Israelis. That stayed with me, and I spent most of my time at the White House trying to encourage those ties. But unfortunately, as with so many things, the Palestinian leadership rejected the ability of being able to improve Palestinian lives while working for peace. Their attitude very much was, you let us worry about our own economy, which of course they don't do a very good job at. We will not encourage any ties between Israel and Palestinians or Israel and its Arab neighbors unless and until we have the peace deal that we want. When I explained to them that, let's say for argument's sake, it would take two years to negotiate a peace agreement. Of course, at the time, I didn't know that it would take nearly three years to launch the peace plan. But when I would explain to them that it would take arguably two years to actually sign a peace agreement, during those two years, we could do great things for the Palestinian people, for the Palestinian economy. If a peace agreement were to be signed, their economy would be two years ahead of where it was. And if a peace agreement were not to be signed, then they would still be better. But those arguments fell on deaf ears, unfortunately, with the Palestinian leadership. So many obstacles along the way. Uh, and you said, you've said this openly, the United States is not an honest broker. No one can possibly be so. The insistence then, therefore, must be that this can only be done between the parties. You can only help this mission. Correct. I think it's a false argument to say the United States is not an honest broker because, as you say, and I've said many times before, there is no such thing. There is no one country in the world or international organization that doesn't have bias against anything. Our task was to create a peace plan that is realistic and implementable and as good as possible to both sides, that both sides should be able to negotiate from it. And with that is how we did our job. The notion that there could be some impartial group of countries, a country, some international organization that could come up with an unbiased plan, I don't think exists. I don't think it ever existed. And I certainly don't think it exists today. And I think, unfortunately, what the Palestinian leadership is doing by trying to rely on the United Nations or others is, again, just a waste of everybody's time. The Palestinian leadership is calling for an international conference, which, by the way, they had one after President Trump was uh, won the election before he was sworn in. I believe that France held an international conference either at the end of 2016 or in January of 2017. It accomplished nothing. It's just a bunch of diplomats getting together, saying things that they believe in, which is fine. It's no different than we say things that we believe in. But it doesn't help the Israelis reach peace and security. It doesn't help the Palestinians reach peace and security and prosperity. It is a pure waste of time. What should happen now is all of these diplomats should pick up the Trump peace plan and try to encourage both sides together and help both sides get closer and closer 
on the basis of the plan. If they simply revert back to the talking points of the past, based on everything that I know about this conflict, they will be not only wasting their time, they will be wasting the Palestinians' lives, the Palestinians' time, and of course the Israelis' time. Mudar Zahran, a Palestinian and Jordan self-styled opposition leader who lives in exile in London, told me the Palestinians aren't chasing identity. They want the priceless commodity of dignity. Let's do the math. When there is an anti-Israel protest somewhere in, in uh, the West Bank, somewhere, Bethlehem, how many children do you see out there? You'd be lucky to count 20, 50 at best. The old days, uh, like for example the first and the second Intifada, some protests did attract up to 100,000, at least 20,000. This is no more. People have changed. The Palestinians are seeking dignity over identity, and the Palestinian refugees all over the Arab world are not interested in the right of return. This all leads us to one place. All roads lead to Jordan, Amman, where we already have a state, where we already are the majority, where we already get along quite nicely with the uh, East Bankers, or what some of you call the Bedouins, because there's no genetic or personal or social difference. So, you know, this is about just realizing the facts on the ground rather than uh, the so-called experts' theories about solving the conflict. There are, of course, objections from Arabs and Palestinians from within Israel itself, indeed. It is a thriving democracy and has a sizable opposition, and from Jews who live in Judea and Samaria who fear that their villages and towns would suddenly be surrounded by new Palestinian towns and infrastructure which might lead to them being cut off, isolated from Israel itself. Uh, what assurances, Jason, can you give to the security issues for Israelis in this new Judea and Samaria? Well, first of all, the fact that that opposition exists shows just how challenging this peace plan is even to Israel. So for those who suggest that this was a layup for Israel and we've given Israel everything they want, clearly the opposition shows that that is not an accurate statement. Um, as to the assurances, I, I rely heavily on the Israeli government when it comes to Israel's security. If the Israelis believe that this plan and any amendments to the plan that are necessary properly protects them. It's not for me to say that it doesn't. I also want to remind your audience something that isn't talked about often. So you do hear, I'm sure, all the time about uh, how Israelis build in, you know, illegal settlements or illegal housing, which we don't believe in. Uh, we didn't in the Trump administration. And I recognize that we are um, a lone voice or among a small group of countries that feels this way. But what people don't also talk about is the fact that Palestinians are building in Judea and Samaria left and right as well. There is so much Palestinian building, illegal because they don't have the permits for what they build within Judea and Samaria outside of areas A and B. But in area C, they're building plenty and surrounding these villages and towns. And the way that Israel maintains their security is by having a proper force there. Well, those forces will need to remain in place unless and until Israel, even under a peace agreement that is signed on the basis of the Trump plan, those forces will need to remain there to protect those Israelis who live in those uh, villages, towns, and cities. 
But if we didn't do a good enough job on that, by all means, I would encourage any Israeli who is uncomfortable with the security situation that we have established with this plan to speak to their government. It is a democratically elected government. And I know, I, I feel firmly that the Israeli government would never sign a deal which would put those people at risk. Now, there are a few things on the wish list. The demilitarization of Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad. Beyond a very swift and brutal Israeli ground war in Gaza, Jason, how can that be achieved for a real, lasting peace? Well, first, let me flip your question on its head, which is how can one achieve a peace agreement or expect Israel to sign a peace agreement unless that is achieved? Again, you know, people are out there criticizing our plan and saying how it doesn't hew to the talking points of the past, yet nobody is asking the question of, well, how do you expect Israel to sign a peace agreement unless it knows that it will no longer be threatened by those bloodthirsty terrorists in Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad? So I think the question, of course, is fair, but I think the question that people should be asking more is um, along the lines of how we wrote it in the plan, which is it's obvious that that must be a precursor to peace. Otherwise, Israel cannot and should not be asked or it should not be demanded of Israel to sign a peace agreement. As to how, it's an excellent question. It is one of those questions, like how to alleviate the suffering of the Palestinians in Gaza, that there is no good answer to. I will tell you that after three years at the White House, having asked that question, both your question and how to alleviate the suffering in Gaza in a way that keeps Israel secure, there are no good answers to. So as well-meaning as the diplomats are to try to help the Palestinians in Gaza, and however many of them recognize that it is Hamas's fault that the suffering goes on, and of course Palestinian Islamic Jihad, nobody has any good answer to that question. I'd like to add something else, which is everybody's constantly blaming Israel for what is happening in Gaza. But the truth is, and you know, our, our White House, our administration made no secret about saying it, it is really caused by Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad. Israel, if it had its chance to help the people in Gaza, would, but not at the cost of, its, of the safety of its own citizens. They don't want to be um, building up a region again, only to find out that rockets were launched again and again in Israeli civilians, um, that their borders, uh, those who protect their borders are attacked. Life doesn't work that way. Jason, in September 2019, you left the White House. So what exactly is your involvement in the process now? And in your absence from the ongoing day-to-day politics of this, is Jared Kushner and Avi Berkovitz, are those two gentlemen taking more of a central role, David Friedman as well? Yes, well, uh, David, Jared and I were always partners on this project. So, of course, their roles remain Avi was always uh, involved from day one, and uh, he has stepped up to the plate, I think, in a very excellent way. He has developed strong relationships in the Middle East, including with the Israelis. Unfortunately, of course, not with the Palestinians at the Palestinians' choice. But the three of them working hand-in-hand with our National Security Council, our State Department, and others in the government are uh, taking, uh, you know, take, have taken the bull by the horns and trying to work out this peace proposal and keep pushing forward. Um, My involvement is in an unofficial capacity. I have no formal involvement in any way, shape, or form, but I do speak to diplomats and government officials and ordinary citizens and people throughout the region. And um, 
I would say that my heart and soul were touched by the people of the region, Israelis and Palestinians and Arabs throughout the region, uh, both leadership and ordinary people. And uh, as a, a former peace process person told me when I left, it's like the Eagles song, Hotel California. You can check out any time you like, but you can never leave. And I didn't understand it until uh, here I am now, nearly six months out or perhaps longer. And I realize exactly what he means. I, I spend a lot of time still talking about the conflict with all of my contacts and still trying to help in the little that I can uh, being a private citizen now. Do you blink for a moment and think in sort of a moment where perhaps you look up at the sky in a moment of contemplation and think, I'm a Jewish American, uh, I'm a first generation Jewish American, and I have been given this extraordinary, unique opportunity in time and in your life to do this job. It's amazing. Yeah. Yes, I would say many, many times, lying awake at night, whether uh, in Saudi Arabia, in Qatar, in Israel, didn't matter where it was, uh, often in Washington, D.C., of course. But it is quite amazing. And since you touched on religion, I, I do want to sort of uh, also push back on a question that I often get, which is, how is it that a religious man, or in the case of Jared and David as well, three Orthodox Jews were the right choice for this? And I would argue it's quite the opposite. Religion is so important in this region um, that my being a religious person has only enhanced the conversations and the respect that we showed one another. What I have to put to fill in on phylacteries in any particular Arab country um, I was only shown tremendous respect for them to find me a place, a private place to pray. My kosher dietary requirements also were always adhered to, including, by the way, with the Palestinian Authority. In one of my first meetings with them, perhaps it was my first meeting, we had a massive lunch prepared. Uh, their food looked excellent, but they went out of their way to make sure that I was properly fed. Um, I understand when they have to go pray as well. Like there's a an unspoken understanding between me and them about how religion and family for that matter, what that all means to us and why it's important to solve this conflict. So um, I feel blessed that I had the opportunity. I think my being a religious person uh, was not a negative. I would argue it was a positive. That doesn't mean that those who aren't religious can't uh, also play a, a significant role or even perhaps solve the conflict. But I uh, would say that it was not a negative whatsoever. Tell me something about your American background, because your family arrived in the U.S. as late as 1956 on your mother's side and 1941 on your father's side, Hungarian, victims of Nazis and communists. So what do your achievements say about being an American and what impact on your politics and your outlook does your family history have? Well, I think it's, uh, I'm an example, one of so many in this country, of uh, how great a country, how great a nation the United States of America is. You know, both my families came uh, very poor. Uh, they worked hard all their lives to send us to uh, private school, meaning yeshiva, to study Jewish subjects alongside of secular subjects. And uh, over the course of several decades, I worked my way from being just an ordinary citizen um, and a lawyer to being given this tremendous opportunity to try to help improve the lives of millions and millions of people. I think that if my grandparents from Hungary 
saw that path, they never, ever would have believed it. So I consider myself uh, extraordinarily fortunate to have grown up in the United States of America. We, like so many countries, are going through some challenging times uh, at the moment. And um, I think that my outlook on what is going on is heavily shaped by the experience that I know the prior generation uh, of mine that grew up in Europe faced and uh, how fortunate I was to grow up here in this blessed country. I want to bring the interview to an end there because I think that is a magnificent way to do that and say to you, Jason Greenblatt, thank you very much for talking to me today on Johnny Gould's Jewish State. Thank you, Johnny. It was an honor and a pleasure, and I appreciate the time. With thanks to Lawrence Rich, without his steadfast friendship, we couldn't have got this far. Never miss another Johnny Gould's Jewish State. And be first to hear the next show by subscribing now. Follow Johnny Gould on Twitter and Johnny Gould Show on Facebook. And if you liked what you heard today, leave a rating or review. That really helps bring more listeners to the show.